Welcome to the Pathway Church Podcast, where you'll find fresh messages uploaded weekly. Pathway Church is a Bible-based church located in Peterborough, Ontario, and we're on a mission to reach people far from God and see them become devoted followers of Jesus. We hope that what you hear today will help you to take one step closer to Jesus. Thanks so much for joining us, and if you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe. Good morning. Today we're kicking off a brand new uh, four-week message series called The Bible for Grown-Ups. The Bible for Grown-Ups. Now, of course, this message series isn't just uh, for grown-ups, it's for everyone, uh, but we're going to be talking at length over the next four weeks about the story of the Bible, the story of the Bible. Now, this message series that I'm going to be going through with you was originally written by Andy Stanley Stanley and North Point Church, but uh, I've been really looking forward to over the past few weeks, I've been preparing to share this series with you, um, to uh, to express it in a way that I think will be really helpful for us. Now, you may be wondering, who's this message series for? Let me tell you. First of all, if you grew up, like myself, in a home where you were taught the Bible, where from a young age someone handed you a Bible and said, this is God's word, believe it, and that was you, and you've been trying to live that out, but nobody ever told you why you should believe this book, this series is for you. Maybe uh, you grew up in a home like mine where someone handed you a Bible, told you to believe it, but over the years you have grown increasingly skeptical. Maybe you got to college, university, uh, professor or someone in your class started to challenge you know, the, the authenticity of the Bible or the accuracy of the Bible. Maybe they said, oh, look at all the atrocities that have happened in the name of the Bible. And, and you've, just, you, you've just begun skeptical over time of what this book says and where it came from. The last group of people might be those who say, hey, you know what? I've never really given the Bible, this book, any kind of serious consideration. I mean, I've never, I mean, I was told it was a book of myths. I was told it was an ancient religious book. I've told all kinds of things, but I never read it or examined it for myself as an adult. And so uh, this message series, The Bible for Grown-Ups, is going to help those people in those categories, which I think is probably all of us. Here's the thing I know about the Bible. Most of us have heard Bible stories, okay? Most of us have learned Bible stories, uh, even if you've never been to church before, you've probably heard the story of David and Goliath, right? Or maybe you've heard about Daniel in the lion's den, or Moses parting the Red Sea and the nation of Israel escaping the clutches of, of Pharaoh. And so there's these incredible Bible stories that we have all heard and maybe we know, but very few people know the story of the Bible. Very few people, even within the church, know how we got this book, okay? And so what we want to do over the next few weeks is talk about the story of the Bible. Because if you don't know the story of the Bible... You don't know the story of the Bible. It's easy to discount the stories in the Bible. And by the way, there is a problem, particularly for those of us who grew up in church. The problem is this, that the way that you got our Bible, the way we got our Bible is not the way we got the Bible. So for example, when I was a little kid, uh, about four years old, I prayed a prayer and I wanted to follow Jesus. My parents had taught me about him. I'd been to Sunday school and just as a little squirt. And I remember them giving me my first Bible. It was like a little leather bound New Testament. And I remember getting that Bible and they were like, this is God's word. And they handed it to me and I was so excited. I'm like, wow, I get a copy of God's word. I couldn't read it. I was four. I could barely knew. I knew some letters. I knew a few basic words, but I opened it up. It was King James. It was like, so all I knew was it was valuable. And my parents uh, told me later uh, that when I was in kindergarten, I wore my three piece brown suit with the vest and tie to kindergarten. And I carried that Bible under my arm into class and I told people about Jesus and here's why I wanted to be a preacher can you imagine that and it's funny because now I am a preacher 
And I look back and I'm like, that's cute and a little weird. And as I look back, I think, wow, I had the preacher bit right, but the suit is just not my thing. As you know, you'll very rarely see me in it. If you want to see me in a suit, get married or die. That's kind of how this thing works, okay? Uh, I'll put a suit on for that. But, but man, from a young age, I knew, I knew it was valuable. I knew it was important, but I didn't really know why. And I, I think part of the problem that we're talking about here is that the way you introduce concepts to children is different than the way you introduce concepts to adults. You don't understand what I'm saying. If your three-year-old comes up and says, Mommy, where do babies come from? The answer that you give them is like, well, when two people love each other, they have a baby. It's like, it's fine. You guys know where this is going. As they get older, right, when they're seven or eight and they ask the same question, you're going to answer with more detail. When they're teenagers, you might, you might have to show some illustrations. You might have to get some science textbooks out, right? When they go to medical school, like there are levels of how the information is expressed and communicated and learned. You understand what I'm saying? And it's the same thing with the Bible. When a, per, a kid is a child, like myself, my parents hand up and say, this is God's word. They didn't explain to me how I could know it was God's word. They didn't explain the history of it. They didn't explain how all the pieces fit together. They just said, it's God's word, which is true, but really, really simplistic. And unfortunately, a lot of people in church today that are grown-ups have never learned the story of the Bible. They don't know how it all fits together, why it came together, or the history of it. And because they don't know it, it is so hard for them to understand it and read it and apply it. So check this out. Uh, about when I was six or seven years old, of course, my little King James Bible that I carried around was very difficult for me to read. So my parents got me a picture Bible. And maybe some of you had one of these. I remember I had a red hardback cover. It looked like this. I got a little image. This is like the nation of Israel going through the Red Sea. And I remember reading the different stories in the Old Testament. They have the little captions and the verses. And it was just Oh, I loved it. I just, I read that thing until the pages fell out. I just loved the Bible stories. But the picture Bible never explained how this whole book came together. So that's what we're going to be doing over the next uh, few days. You know, uh, again, many of the things that I was told as a kid about the Bible, it's like, this is God's word. Every word is true. Do what it says. And honestly, I still agree with those statements. They're just very simplistic. And I thought for a fun example, I would do this live, but I won't, where I would just say, okay, if that's how simplistic your view of the Bible is, I'll just jam my finger into the Old Testament, flip it open, we'll read it and say, let's go do that. And some of you know what's going to happen. When I was rehearsing this week, kind of getting ready for my message, I jammed my finger and it happened to land in Judges chapter four. And there's this cool story where a king is running for his life. And this woman's like, come hide in my tent. You know, that's trouble. And so he goes into the tent and she says, here, get on this carpet. And she rolls him up in the carpet and he's hiding in the carpet, and she takes a tent peg, puts it through his head. You know, that's a story they never taught me in Sunday school, you know? And nobody's going to be like, hey, read that, Judges 4, and then go out and do it. You know, thus says the Lord, have a great week. So we understand when we open up the Bible, there's so much complexity to it. I didn't understand as a kid that the Bible was full of a whole bunch of documents that were organized in a particular way, that each of these different types of documents had different purposes, did you know that the Bible has history, it has law, it has poetry? And I'm telling you, you don't interpret poetry the way you interpret a book of law. Very different. Okay? Some of it is biography, telling about the life of Jesus, about the patriarchs. So you have all these different components all placed inside this book, and very few people know how it fits together. Um, the story of the Bible, this is really important, the story of the Bible sheds light on how we are to read, interpret, and apply what the Bible says. My hope is that after this four-week series, you would be better equipped to open the Bible and know what you're reading, why it's there, why it's significant, and how it fits with the rest of the parts. 
Because when you do that, you will know how to read, how to interpret, and how to apply the Bible. Again, if you open up a particular text and be like, it says it, I'm going to do it. But you don't have the context in the story. I would make an argument, actually, that knowing the story of the Bible is almost as important as knowing what the Bible says. Because you know, and history has proven, that people can take verses rules, laws out of the Bible and misappropriate them, misinterpret them, and hurt a lot of people. So it's just really, really, really important. You know, um, you may not know this. I know many of you will, but some of you may not know that the, the word Bible actually just means book. Did you know that? It means book. That's why in the French language, right, which is a derivative of Latin, the, the library is what? Does anybody know what the library is called in French? Bibliotech, right? It starts with the word Bible. It's like the place of books, right? And so the Bible is just literally means book, which is really fascinating, but it actually means the book. Like it is the book of books, most copied, most translated, most widely circulated book in the history of the world. Okay. It's, it's the holy book, the holy Bible. Um, you know, I was thinking about this. If, um, if you took the greatest fisherman of all time, and I'm just going to call him Bob Azumi because he's the only fisherman I know. I'm not a fisher. So you got Bob Azumi, and he writes down everything he knows about fishing at the end of his life, and he compiles it all into a giant book. It might be called, what? The Fisherman's Bible. The book on fishing. And so the Bible is the book. But what you may not know is that inside the book that we call the Bible, actually there are 66 separate documents written over a span of 1,600 years. And here's the survey question. We put out a poll earlier. Let me just check your results and see how you guys are doing. I was wondering when I created this poll how many people would Google the answer before answering. And I suspect there's been some foul play. Uh, But so far we have 48% gave the answer... Okay, let me just give you, here are the answers we said. How many authors wrote the Bible? The first answer was one. That was your first option. The second uh, option was 24. The third option was 40. And the last option was 66. And the correct answer is approximately 40. And 49% of you got it right, which is awesome. Uh, A few people voted for one, right? Because they're thinking, God wrote the book. But what's incredible is that as we study the story of the Bible, we discover that there are 66 documents written by 40 or more authors over a span of 1,600 1600 years. We have history, we have law, we have poetry, we have biography, we have prophecy, we have all of these incredible components sandwiched together. The Bible can be divided into two components. Many of you will know this if you've opened one. Um, The first two-thirds of the Bible are called the Old Testament. And next week and in the week following, we're going to talk more about why the Old Testament is in our Christian Bible. Okay, and the Old Testament are the Jewish scriptures. If you were to go to a Jewish synagogue where they don't believe in Jesus, they still read and study the Old Testament, but to them, it's the Bible. And now the Christian Bible has all of these 27 additional documents that we call the the Christian scriptures, or you call it the New Testament. And these are all documents written about Jesus and what happened after Jesus' life and it's written by the apostles and early church leaders. So we got these two segments of the Bible. And once again, knowing the story of the Bible is going to help us to shed light on how we read, interpret, and apply what it says. So I wanted to say this before we move on. Um, there is absolutely no way. I'm talking fast, and there's no way I'm going to be able to cover everything that could be covered in a four-week series on this grand subject. So I wanted to create an opportunity to have some dialogue and provide some feedback And so what we're going to do is we've posted an email email account. If you throw up your questions at pathwaylife.com. And if during this message series I say something that triggers a question, 
or if I don't cover something, or we skip something, or you just generally have a question about this topic of the Bible, shoot an email there, and what I'm going to do is during the middle of the week, sometime midweek, I'll either post a video with some thoughts and answers on the subject, or maybe even do a little live webcast on Facebook or something. I want to create a little bit of dialogue and be able to answer questions that you may have about this incredible topic. So make a note of that as I go. Uh, You can throw up some questions and ask them there. So where should we begin as we begin talking about the story and the history of the Bible? Well, once again, when I go back to my own childhood, here's what um, I remember. I remember my parents telling me that God wrote this book. And I believe that's true, but that was really simplistic. And in my childhood brain, here's what I imagined. I imagined like this glowing orb, God coming down, taking a feather pen, because they didn't have ballpoints, feather pen, and writing and scribing out the entire book of the Bible on a scroll or something, right? And then God turned to somebody and said, like, print a billion copies and put it on you version so digital people can read it. And of course, none of that happened, right? And so I just picture God writing it because, of course, we believe that God wrote it. So what's incredible about this is that when I began to study the history of the Bible, what I discovered is that there are authors And as we've already said, there are 40 or more authors, and each of them writes with a vantage point and a perspective. And if we just say, the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says, we actually lose the context of the authors who often tell us why they were writing what they were writing. And so again, knowing the story helps us to interpret it. So today, I want to turn to Luke's account, which is in the New Testament. It's toward the end of the middle of the Bible. And you might think, well, maybe we should start in Genesis. Well, we'll get there next week. But the reason why I want to start in Luke's gospel is because Luke is an eyewitness. Luke is a person who was there at the first century, who knew the people, who wrote the Bible, who was present with Paul, traveling around with him. And he writes with a specific purpose. In fact, he tells us what that purpose is as he opens up his letter. Let's take a look. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Here's what Luke says. He's beginning to pen this document. Now, this is so important. When Luke sat down with a feather pen, or whatever he's using, to write his document, I guarantee you that Luke did not know he was writing the Bible. He was penning a document, and he tells us exactly why he was penning it. Notice this. He says, inasmuch as many, everybody say many, that's important, many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. So Luke says a number of things, super important. Number one. Many people have written an account of Jesus' life. I'm not the only one. In the New Testament, we have four accounts of Jesus' life. There were actually many others written that were, were not included in the Bible because they weren't accurate or for various reasons. But there were many, many documents written about Jesus, and we have a bunch of them in our Bible, okay? Many people have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished. Something happened, friends, that caused people to write about Jesus' life. Something happened. We need to all say this together. Something happened. Let's try it again because I want to hear you. Something happened. Think about this. Why would so many people, at a time when writing was very difficult, you couldn't just pull out a computer and type stuff up. You had to get parchments made out of sheepskin or papyrus, or you had to you had to spend a lot of money and a lot of time to hand write all of this stuff down. And why would so many people compile a narrative of Jesus' life? And, he, and Luke tells us right from the beginning, something happened. Something was accomplished among us that was so incredible that it was worth writing about. And many people have written about it. Next verse. 
He goes on, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. Now what Luke is saying right here is that there were other people who were eyewitnesses of Jesus' life and ministry, his own disciples, who had written a version of Jesus' life, the other gospels that we have. He's like, there were eyewitnesses who were there, who were with Jesus, who preached alongside Jesus, who saw his miracles, and they have also delivered documents like mine to you. Next verse. Here's what he says. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past. We find Luke traveling with Paul, as I mentioned earlier. We find Luke present with Peter, James, and John at various councils. Like Luke is very active in the early church. He knows all the key players. He was very able to, to document what had actually happened. And here's what he says next. He says, To write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So right in the first three verses of Luke's document, he says, here's why I'm writing. I'm writing because something happened. I know people closer to the scene than me also wrote, but since I am connected to these people, I thought it would be a good idea for me to write an orderly account. He's like a, what do you call that? Um, um, Investigative journalist. And Luke would have interviewed Peter and James and John and Mary Magdalene and the various people in the Bible story. He would have been able to interview them because he was alive at the time. And he's writing this document because this man, Theophilus, had heard about Jesus. And again, in the first century, people weren't walking around with a Bible. It didn't exist. People didn't have the Gospels and the letters of Paul in 50 AD. They didn't exist yet. And so people heard about Jesus, believed in Jesus, and the church grew by word of mouth, by hearing the stories. And Theophilus had heard about Jesus, heard about this incredible something that had happened, and wanted to know if it was myths and fables or true. And Luke's like, I will investigate that. I'm close. I'll talk to the people. And so he writes his document with this in mind, to create an orderly account of the things that had happened. Now, what is the significant thing that happened? Well, we're going to read about it in Luke 23. So if we skip ahead to Luke 23, uh, I'll give you a bit of the backstory. In Luke 23, we have Jesus uh, crucified upon a cross. And after Jesus' body is lifeless upon the cross, uh, sundown is coming very shortly. And according to Jewish law, they were not allowed to work once the sun went down. It was the Sabbath. And so uh, Joseph of Arimathea, a religious leader, gets permission to take the body of Jesus off the cross and to bury it in a stone tomb. And so it tells us what happens. He took it down, the body, wrapped it in a linen shroud, just kind of like threw a cloth around him. He's running out of time, always in a hurry. And he's taking Jesus' body and he lays him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. So he quickly puts Jesus' body inside a tomb and they roll a stone over because Sabbath is about to begin. But notice what happens right next. This is the women who had come with him from Galilee with Jesus. These are women that followed Jesus for many years, that loved him. Some of them were financially supporting his ministry following him everywhere he went. And some of these women, it said they followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. These women loved Jesus. They believed he was the Messiah. And so when they saw his body just kind of like cheaply wrapped and put in this, they're like, mm, 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 not for Jesus. He needs better than that. Notice what happens next. This is super, super important. They returned and prepared spices and ointments. They would have to wait until the Sabbath was over to return, open up the tomb, and embalm his body properly the way he should be because they loved him. Now the reason why this is so important is because it tells us that the women who loved Jesus and followed him really did not believe that he was coming back to life. 
They didn't believe. Where are the men who followed Jesus, who heard him predict his own death and resurrection? They were hiding. So nobody at this point in church history is a Christian. There is no church. There definitely is no the Bible. There's just hopelessness. The one that everyone thought was the answer, the Messiah from God, was dead. Hope was lost. Rome had won. The religious leaders of the day had won. No Christians. No church. No the Bible. None of it exists. Just hopelessness. And and what's incredible is that if you've been around for Easter, then you know the something that happened that changed everything. On the third day, on Sunday morning, as the sun rose, that stone rolled away and Jesus came out of the tomb alive. And he didn't just come out of the tomb alive seen by one or two people, but he was seen by all his disciples. He was seen by others who loved him, some of those women. He was seen by as many as 500 people over a span of about a week and a half. So Jesus is seen alive, and because that happened, people began to write the story of Jesus' life, death, resurrection. Because that happened, the church was launched and went throughout the Roman Empire. Because that happened, people wrote letters to those churches. Something significant happened. It was the resurrection of Jesus. Here's the next thing. Luke documented the life of Jesus precisely because the story of Jesus did not end on a Roman cross. The point I'm trying to make is we wouldn't have this book today if it wasn't for the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus is a thing that caused people to write about his life. The resurrection of Jesus is what caused the church to be launched and the reason why we have this book in our hands today. So, Peter's first sermon. Let's take a look at this, okay? Um, Less than two months after the resurrection of Jesus, Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost and begins to preach to a big crowd of Jewish men, all right? And here's what he says. Okay, check this out. Because the reason why this is important is because some people would say, you know what, Um, this idea of Jesus rising from the dead it was added 100 years, 200 years later, right? So really, Jesus died. He was a good man. People stole his body, you know, and then this resurrection myth kind of surfaced later. Mm-mm. Within two months of Jesus' resurrection, Jesus stands up in front of 3,000, at least 3,000 men, and he says, Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. Peter's like, hey, you remember less than two months ago, many of you Jewish men stood outside Pilate's and And he said, I'll give you Jesus or Barabbas. And you went, Barabbas, Barabbas, crucify Jesus. Some of the men that were there to see Jesus crucified were standing in the audience. Okay, so this isn't hundreds of years later. This is not myths and fables. Peter's standing up and calling out people who had helped put Jesus on the cross. And he says, when he had decided to release him, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Barabbas, Barabbas. Next verse. And you killed the author of life. Here's another thing. Some people would posit this argument that maybe two or three hundred years after Jesus' death and supposed resurrection, that's what they would say, all right, that some hundreds of years later that people said, oh, Jesus wasn't just a good man and a teacher and a prophet, but he was actually God. So they deified him much later. You know how myths can grow. So they deified him. Here's what Peter says not two months after the resurrection. You killed the author of life. The man who hung on the cross was actually the one who created the heavens and the earth. This, this wasn't added later. This from the beginning. They're like, Jesus is God. From the beginning. They're like, Jesus rose from the dead. Whom God raised from the dead, to this we are witnesses. These disciples and followers of Jesus saw him resurrected, spent time with him. And these men who were scared and hiding 
became leaders who would boldly proclaim Christ and his resurrection right until their death. There's a radical shift that happens, and it happens because of the resurrection. And from the beginning, Jesus was viewed as God. And from the beginning, Jesus' uh, resurrection was attested by witnesses. And because of that, the early disciples, they talked about it, the resurrection. They preached about it, the resurrection. And then they finally wrote about it, the resurrection. And eventually they would die for it. Not for a belief, not for good morals. They died for their belief in the resurrection of Jesus. Almost every single one of them. Now, as we said earlier, um, there were multiple people who were close to Jesus who wrote accounts of his life. And if you open your Bible, you'll find a number of them. You'll find the book of Matthew. Some of you have read it. And Matthew was one of Jesus' disciples, and he chronicles the life of Jesus with a particular view in mind. He's thinking about Jews. And he writes, if you read the Gospel of Matthew, what you'll find is it begins with this long Jewish genealogy of where Jesus came from. And then throughout its pages, he's constantly quoting Old Testament um, scrolls and prophets to prove to the Jews that Jesus was their Jewish Messiah. That was his purpose in writing Matthew. So when you read it with Matthew's intended purpose, it, it comes off the page. And then you have Mark's gospel, which is believed to be Peter's. So Peter dictated his account of Jesus' life to a young man named John Mark, who would later travel with Paul. And John Mark would have written down Peter's account of Jesus' life, and it's full of action and power and miracles. It's awesome. And then, of course, there's Luke, who approaches it like an investigative journalist. In the year that Quirinius was governor... Why do we care? Because it's great in the Christmas story, right? He's writing down specific details about Jesus' life. And the last one, and the one that I want to take a few minutes to look at, is the Gospel of John. John was the disciple that Jesus loved. John's account of Jesus' life is actually the one that they believe was written last, like last or second last document in the New Testament to be written. And John, at the very, very old age of whatever, 80, 90, maybe close to 100 years old, at the end of his life in prison, he puts pen to paper to say, here is my account of Jesus' life. Here's my account of who he is. And he also, like Luke, writes with a very, very specific purpose in mind. Um, here's what he says in John 20, verse 30. Check this out. <laughs> now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. Now, check this out. John specifically says, Jesus did a whole bunch of miracles that I didn't bother writing down. Oh, I could tell you a whole bunch, he could say. I opted not to share all the miracles. If, if you actually compare John's gospel with the other three, guess what? It has only about eight miracles in it, and the other gospels have at least 20, like all of them. So he's telling the truth. I, I, my point wasn't to tell you all the miraculous things that Jesus did. Next verse. Here's what he says. But these are written. He is going to tell us exactly why he wrote his account of Jesus' life. This is so important. When we read and interpret and apply the Bible, we need to know why these individual authors wrote what they wrote. He says, but these words of mine are written that you, that the first century Christians who would eventually receive these, these words, and, and for us, nearly 2,000 years later, they're written that you, what? May believe. John's like, my whole document is written so that you would believe something. And he's going to tell us what that is. This something is so, so important. Here's what he says that we're to believe. To believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John says, I've written my entire document. It's pretty lengthy. For one purpose. So that you would believe in Jesus. 
that you in the beginning was the Word. He begins by telling us who Jesus is, and then he, he proves it with a few miracles and walks us through this theology of who Jesus is. He wrote with the purpose to say, if there was the one thing that you need to hear, the one thing that summarizes everything this whole thing is about, I'm going to tell you what it is, that you would believe in Jesus, and that by believing in him, you would have life in his name. This is why, by the way, when someone comes to you and says, I've never opened a Bible before, where should I start? Nobody says start in Genesis. Nobody says start in Leviticus. Definitely don't start there. Nobody says start in Matthew. I mean, people usually say to start where? John's Gospel. And the reason why is because his entire Gospel is written to show us who Jesus is that we would believe in him. In fact, this is a bold statement, but if John's Gospel account is all you have, John's account is all you need. Because in it, he gives the message that drove the early church. Now you say, what about the rest of it? Super important. We're going we're gonna to talk about how it all fits together and why it's all important. But, but the basic message of following Christ, I mean, when the church, the first hundred years of the church, you couldn't walk in and be like, oh, reference 1 Peter chapter 2, or let's turn over to Matthew chapter 16. It didn't exist. It didn't exist. People heard about the resurrected Jesus from eyewitness accounts. And as I said earlier, eventually these eyewitnesses and apostles began to put to pen not only their account of Jesus' life, but letters to encourage and correct the early church. And these documents that began to circulate towards the end of the first century were considered valuable and reliable. They were considered valuable, reliable, sacred, and inspired. And even, and I could show you this, Scripture. They saw the writings of the early church fathers, the apostles, and they were considered so sacred, so valuable, because they were eyewitness accounts from the people who walked with Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. So, when we come to the end of the first century, about 65 to 70 years after Jesus' resurrection, let me tell you what happens. Around this time, the last of the eyewitnesses are dying. There's just a few left who were alive at the time of Jesus. And as they die, I can tell you, these documents that were created by the apostles and the early church fathers became so valuable. Can you imagine how valuable those documents would be? To have eyewitness accounts of what Jesus did, what he said, and how he rose. Can you imagine? Like, it's one thing to hear stories and facts. When I was in high school, we learned about World War II. I loved that. And I remember the little graphs, and you could see uh, towards the end of World War II, the Russian army broke through the eastern you know, German defenses and were moving through Germany. And from the west, you have the allies coming in, and they meet in Berlin, and the war has ended, right? And so you know the story. But when my wife and I first got married, we moved into a farmhouse, and the lady who owned the house was renting to us was an elderly woman in her 80s from Germany. She lived through it. And I remember going back there, and she would feed me cookies, and I would sit on her little wicker couch, and I would ask her questions. And it, it wasn't a textbook anymore. It wasn't a bunch of facts about the war. She told me about how she operated at the age of 19 her own farm in eastern Germany. She had, uh, what do you call those, uh, war prisoners working on her farm producing food for the German army, okay? And when the Russian Red Army broke through the line, she escaped with her life. And then she found herself, they took a train into central Germany. She was in, I can't remember which large city, but she talked about how at night the, the, the sirens would go off and the bombings would begin and they would hide under the ground until it was over and she and other women had to go out and find all the bombs that hadn't exploded and mark them so the military, like 
just the kinds of stories she shared about how the rats and uh, we could go on. But it's something so incredible about hearing a first-hand account of an eyewitness to something, isn't it? So as these eyewitnesses died off, man, the documents that they had written became so valuable. You cannot imagine. And remember how costly it would have been to transcribe them and to share them. I mean, they, were, they became so, so valuable. So at the turn of the century, the first century, we had these documents in circulation. Now we fast forward to the end of the second, so at the turn of the second century, around 200 A.D., the Christian church had grown throughout the Roman Empire. In fact, uh, people had begun to take notice, and the Romans were not too impressed. They became increasingly suspicious of the Christians. We'll talk more about this next week. Not because of what the Christians believed. They didn't care that the Christians believed in a resurrected Jesus. What they cared about was the fact that the Christians refused to worship Caesar as God. They cared that the Christians refused to worship the Roman gods. And if you didn't worship the Roman gods, the Roman gods got angry. And you didn't appease them. And so flooding and all these other things would happen. So here's what um, uh, Tertullian wrote. This is important. I got a, a slide here. Tertullian was an early church father at the turn of the second century. He says this. If the Tiber floods the city, that was a river, or if the Nile refuses to rise and water the crops, withholds its, the sky withholds its rain, or there's an earthquake, a famine, pestilence, at once the cry is raised, Christians to the lions. So by the second century, the Christians were being centered out as the cause of every bad thing happening in the Roman Empire, and the persecution became greater and greater. Fast forward another hundred years to the turn of the third century. I think it was in around 302 AD. We have Emperor, Emperor Diocletian. Here's a picture of him, in case you care. There's Emperor Diocletian, and he uh, put an edict in place that caused the greatest persecution of Christians in history. Christians were to be found, caught, and killed. Men, women, children. Sacred Christian documents, if they could be found, were to be destroyed. And during this period of about 20 years, Christians were hunted and killed, and many of them lost their lives protecting the documents that are now included in this book. It's powerful. About 20 or so years later, Constantine the Great, in AD 324, Removed. He becomes the undisputed emperor of Rome and actually removes the edict of persecution. And for the first time in like 250 years, church leaders are either able to gather publicly without fear. And all these church leaders come out of the woodwork. And all of these documents that have been preserved by the lives of faithful Christians start circulating, come out of circulation and into the hands of these leaders. And they have all these scrolls, documents, bits of documents, eyewitness accounts. And this sets the stage over the next 50 years of them compiling and producing the very first, the Bible. Crazy, right? So next week, we're going to continue the story. We're going to pick it up from there. As I say, um, as we go through this series, I really hope that um, instead of us um, being skeptical of the Bible, that our faith in it, our love for it, would increase and grow as we learn the rest of the story. So let me pray, and as I pray, the band's going to come up and uh, close us out in a song called Follow You Anywhere. So if you'd join with me. Father, so much history, so much information, so many ways to look at this. But Father, I pray that as we, um, that as we study the story of the Bible, as we learn more about the things that have taken place, about the apostles who are eyewitnesses to your resurrection, who are willing to give their lives who wrote these documents that we now hold in our hands, so precious. Father, I pray that we, as we sit in the, in the 21st century, would 
embrace and love and value these documents that have been given to us, that were created by you for us. And Lord, that as we read them, we would come to a fuller understanding of what they mean for us. Lord, if there's anyone in this place who has never heeded the words of John to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that they might believe in him and have life through him, I pray that they would do that today. And as we close our service, Lord, may it be our desire that we would continue to follow you wherever you lead. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Pathway Church Podcast. If you'd like to reach out to us, go to our website, pathwaylife.com. And as always, don't forget to subscribe. See you next week.